Hey, fellow unwatchers. Hey. If you're like me, there's few things more unwatchable these days than the Academy Awards. We are the same. That's why this year we've decided to suffer through the entire self-congratulatory celebration of mediocrity the way we always do together. Yow. Join us on Sunday, March 20th. Sorry. <laughs> Join us on Sunday, March 12th for the first annual Unwatchables Oscars live stream. We'll have a number of special guests to help us survive the night. Plus, you'll be able to interact with us, share your own gripes and personal picks, and maybe even see something awful happen on stage. Mm. Check our Instagram, Twitter, or any of our online platforms for details. It's going to be the movie's biggest, most boring, and most insufferable night. We'll see you March 12th. Hey, can I come? Boys and girls, as I have discussed with you many times before, I personally believe that premarital sex is necessary. And now we will go on to discuss the seven erotic zones of passion in every woman. The first one is... Hello and welcome to Unwatchables, the podcast that hangs with films from the bad side of town. I'm Mark Dottavio. I'm Seth Troyer. And today we're discussing some of the most bizarre Christian scare films ever made. The result of an exploitation filmmaker teaming up with a fire and brimstone Baptist preacher. That filmmaker is Ron Ormond, director of sleazy B-movies until a plane crash inspired him to switch to gore-drenched evangelism. His two most famous films include visions of maggot-infested hellfire and communist soldiers lopping off children's heads. They are 1974's The Burning Hell and 1971's If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Oh, run, all ye faithful. All right, and here representing the faithful is our special guest, Michael O'Malley. Uh, Seth, would you like to introduce your friend? Michael O'Malley, everyone. I am very excited uh, to have him on the podcast. I met him through Cinematary, a podcast uh, that he is on regularly right. out of uh, Tennessee, and I would like him to expound upon it a little bit and his role on it, but in it. But uh, that was the first podcast I was ever on before unwatchables was even a a little embryo we broke seth upon the world you did it's your fault um and uh yeah i just wrote for your site about plague dogs and you reached out yeah but i really wanted you for this episode and we always are sort of uh communicating through letterbox and such more often than not about our christian backgrounds like we we both come from Christian household, for lack of a better word, uh, and uh, and our relationship then with film in that context sometimes, which is I, I found very fun to talk with you about sometimes. So I knew yeah. I had to have you for this episode. Um, but yeah, I, I would anything else um, that is Michael O'Malley that I don't know because there's still a lot I don't know about you. Yeah, um, I'm actually a high school English teacher, which is maybe relevant to the if footmen tire you movie because that's got a a bit i really enjoyed about uh 
public school teachers. Yeah. yeah. Otherwise, I'm just here <laughs> watching. Classic. Yeah. Dude, I no no joke. We can talk about this. I'm sure when it when the time comes. But I have replayed that that clip with the public school teacher multiple times this week, just just for a chuckle. <laughs> but yeah, um, I'm here in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I'm usually I'm on the Cinematary podcast talking about movies. It's kind of like a movie of the week podcast, and then we have you know guests on, uh, including Seth, who's been kind of a semi regular presence um, over the past year or two, uh, which has been great. Um, that, that's it, I guess. I got. A, I'm married. Got got two kids. They didn't watch these with me. <laughs> <laughs> they're they're not into Good Christian for scare exploitation films. You know, they they're just already you know in in the clutches of Jesus. I don't feel like I need to scare them that that direction. <laughs> yeah, I I am like relevant to this uh this episode. Like I was raised Christian, and I'm still like I'm still a Christian I still go to church and stuff although I think that like uh I'm kind of you know I've I've flirted with my my heresies here and there you know so uh, I don't know if everyone would consider me like in the fold right you seem to have a particular perspective on Christianity that maybe yeah isn't is definitely at odds with the biblical literal ideas going on in these documentaries uh I don't know if you want to like unpack or expound on any of those uh, i suppose you will as the podcast goes along yeah I, I don't know if i have like some sort of like systematic like statement a lot of it's just picking through all the stuff that i learned and just absorbed growing up and figuring out how much of that i thought was good or not and how much of it was like poisonous garbage you know because <laughs> there's right. a lot of that yeah, well, speaking of poisonous garbage, this is a good place to start with these movies. Um, basically, that if you're taking a very basic kind of scaremongering look into this aspect of faith and Christianity in particular, I think that that's definitely what's in play here. But it is interesting that the guy who made these movies, Ron Ormond, um, who I want to start out talking about, was a guy who didn't come from this place initially. Um, I was reading about him and it's a pretty interesting story that he was a guy who started out on the vaudeville circuit as a magician. And that's where he <laughs> actually, he met his wife, June. His dad owned like a famous burlesque club or something. So right oh, wow. from the get-go, he was born of of evil. I do like that he and his wife were collaborators. That's very sweet. Right. Like she's a producer on a bunch of his films. Even the like really sleazy, like I'm a monstrous stripper movies yeah. and things. <laughs> Yeah, for years, uh, his wife June and him had a touring variety act, and eventually the two of them, and then eventually their son Tim as well, became got into the independent film business. Tiny Tim. So before they eventually relocated to Nashville, they spent the 50s and 60s in Hollywood making, uh, during that time, I know of at least 28 different films, and these were basically B-movies for the Southern Drive-In circuit. So these were very low-budget they very, were very sensational, had very lurid ad campaigns. We got musicals, uh, erotic melodramas, racing films, thrillers, and westerns, especially uh, with his most successful films, I guess, were with Lash LaRue, who was kind of a western <laughs> star back in the day. Is that the guy from Kentucky Jubilee? Because I'm seeing that on Letterboxd right now, and it's a poster with a guy with a huge mustache laughing. He was known for his skill with a whip. 
Uh, Whoa. That's all I know. I haven't seen any of these <laughs> movies. Oh, but Black Lash. That looks like that looks right. Yeah, we got a lot of wonderful titles in his past, like Outlaw Women, King of the Bull Whip. Yep, the whipping. Oh Exotic mm-hmm. Women. Uh, we got Please Don't Touch Me! Exclamation point, which I did watch a scene from, which is like the one about the wife who doesn't want to have sex, right? Yes. It's also known as Teenage Bride, which is another uh, alluring title. The Monster and the Stripper is definitely one of the best titles. It is. And I, if I'm not mistaken, that was the one that he was working on when his uh, conversion moment happened. I think that is the last one before he started the Christian films. I did watch The Monster and the Stripper, and uh, there, was, there were no planes in it. So... Uh, I guess the plane crash happened offset. So the plane thing was a single engine plane that he was flying himself, I believe, to to go to a screening of the girl from Tobacco Road. So he was oh. just flying it with his family, and his whole family was in the plane when it crashed. It was basically like a crash landing, and they he was him and his wife were injured kind of badly, but they did walk away from it and recovered. And I guess. That was kind of the start of this conversion. Uh, but that happened in 1966 after they had relocated to Nashville, uh, which is also kind of interesting that you're coming from Tennessee, yeah. too. And that's kind of his stomping ground, uh, as well as a, a big part of his audience was Southern. Oh, wait, so he moved to Nashville before his conversion? Yes, I think that's where okay. he made the monster and the stripper. But before that, he had this whole career, which, you know, he was never as successful as more famous directors in that vein, like Russ Meyer, Roger Corman, Herschel Gordon Lewis, but that is kind of the milieu that people would associate him with. Uh, one of the movies that I, I watched a scene from was called Untamed Mistress, which uh, it concerns a buxom <laughs> woman who is kidnapped and raised by killer gorillas. <laughs> Amazing. And uh, <laughs> yeah, Really, you could talk about his whole career before this conversion ever happened, but... Sounds badass. I want to know how he got hooked up with uh, Reverend Estes Perkle. Like, was he just there at the plane crash, like a like an ambulance chaser kind of fellow? <laughs> yeah, pulling him out of the rubble. I think the process was probably a little slower than the legend has it as far as the years going by and him getting into <laughs> evangelism. And I don't, it probably wasn't like he emerged, you know, from the flames and <laughs> suddenly had this Wandered this into vision. a church congregation like the guys and the, and the lady in these movies. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right after a traumatizing event. But yeah, Michael, you brought up Estes Perkle, who is someone that we definitely need to talk about because he's the Southern Baptist preacher who's in these films and who he made these films with and for. He's like the auteur of these films. (laughs) Yes, he is absolutely the center. He wrote a book with the same title as uh, If the Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? Yeah, you can't waste a title like that. No. And uh, so this Perkle guy, he he, he wrote books, he had a congregation in Mississippi, and he kind of saw these movies as a way to expand his congregation. So he made three movies with, uh, Ron Ormond. They were shown in churches, which I assume included children of all ages who were watching these movies. And apparently they were always followed by, you know, having people come up to the altar and doing conversions, and which we see happen at the end of both of these films. Mm-hmm. So it really was like an interactive extravaganza. And uh, I can only imagine seeing, especially the burning hell as like a small child. Oh my God. I don't know. <laughs> But if the footman, like, there's—and and there's very 
much an emphasis on violence against children. Like, like, cause it's all about button pushing any like low hanging fruit that he can find, which is like torture of children is like happening a lot in these movies. Yeah. You have like communists coming in and shoving, shoving bamboo into that kid's ear. Yeah. And he's like throws up and there's like a, yeah, we'll, we'll get to all that. Oh my <laughs> God. I mean, I don't know when we get to anything with these cause it is like this weird, there's kind of a plot with any of these movies. They have like a, it just starts as like him on his tirade most of the time. But there's also in both of these, like a conversion happenings, like a plot with somebody who's like in the world, um, quote unquote, of non-Christianity and wanders in to the church and eventually has to like deal with their sins and figure out if they're going to be converted or not. Um, if, if you could call that a, a plot that is running through both of these. It's hard to describe these movies because they're not traditionally structured films. Uh, they're, they range between, you know, 50 and like 57 minutes. And if we start with the first one from 1971, which is called If Footmen Tire You, What Will Horses Do? And uh, I'll just go ahead and read the Bible verse real quick that this is uh, based on. It's from Jeremiah 12, 5. And the, the full... Uh, verse is, if you have run with footmen and they have tired you out, then how can you compete with horses? If you fall down in a land of peace, how will you do in the thicket of Jordan? And that's kind of where this movie starts is that it's half of a filmed sermon of Estes Perkle. And the other half is these kind of, I would call them pre-enactments. It's kind of a warning of what's going to happen. That's a great word. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if we don't bring these things together. And it, the th- closest thing I can compare it to would be something like The War Game from 1966, which oh, that was about a oncoming nuclear apocalypse and kind of a warning, but not like a mockumentary. They, they were straightforward about a person, you know, trying to just give you a heads up about what could and will happen if we don't wise up. But this is much more of kind of a piece of propaganda or a recruitment tool than the war game is. It's way more political. Yeah, it's. I, I was caught off guard by that. I didn't look at like the plot synopses for either one, so I assumed that they were going to be sermons, but this first one is just just like a, a, a fire hose of like red scare, like completely dissociated with anything resembling like what communist states at the time even looked like. Yes. <laughs> like, like, like a... Bolsheviks riding around on horseback, like with swords. Like, where did this even come from? And machine guns. <laughs> right. But yeah. it's all peddled as like facts. It's all right. Referred, like, yeah, there's like multiple times where like Estes, Estes Perkle's like staring right at the camera. He's like, you might think that couldn't happen here, but it's already happened in Cuba, in Russia. <laughs> yeah. So this is like, this is every bit as much of a, a kind of, evangelical Christian film as it is an anti-communist film. And I don't think it really draws distinctions between the two, that it equates America with Christianity with godliness, and it equates communism with the, you know, the forces of Satan and our reckoning. So it kind of has its cake and eats it too, as far as, you know, what its targets are. I, like I mentioned, I grew up like in church and that whole thing about like, you know, right wing politics and like a kind of like propagandistic view of the world, like, you know, as kind of dictated by conservatives, 
that being like inextricable from like the kind of moral or metaphysical claims of Christianity, like that felt very familiar to me. But like growing up in the 90s and then like the 2000s, like the the political milieu was so different. Like I, you know, the communist threat was never the thing that we were scared of. But like that element of there's a lot of this movie that's just like typical, like like conservative Christian moralizing, you know, like he goes on about like premarital sex and like not doing drugs and uh, like those sorts of kind of individual morality thing. But he loops that into the whole project of like protecting you from uh, like protecting you from communism as if like those two things have anything to do with one another. Right. Yeah. Like those are the exports that we gain uh, through communism are these like sinful things that we are doing and the thing behind communism then is satan actually uh, it's like this like sort of <laughs> descending staircase of evil. there's some there's some amazing like scenes too when they're like trying to like the the alleged communists are trying to deconvert like the children like there's that scene with the candy <laughs> where they have the kids like pray to Jesus for candy. And then of course no candy arrives. And then they said, but Fidel Castro can give you candy. And then like this big old, like <laughs> Cuban communist comes in with the big bag of candy. A wheelbarrow of candy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Since you believe that Jesus answers prayers, let's see if your Jesus will bring you some candy now and produce a miracle. I don't see any candy. I don't taste any candy. There is no candy. Your Jesus didn't bring us any candy. The reason why your Jesus Christ can't do it. But I can tell you. We will pray to our glorious leader, Fidel Castro, and our glorious Fidel will bring us all of the candy that we can eat. I will show you a miracle. Oh, my God. They have it. And then it's like, oh, yay. I mean, that is like one of the things about this. They are just like, it's just example after example with like these wild pre-enactments as mark said and they do seem to be i don't know i can't help but think they are members of the congregation must be like acting these things out which they yeah they just are these like wandering groups of like typical looking kind of southern white people that look very very similar to the people that we keep cutting back to in the the church that while he's giving this movie long sermon which really works in a in a way and really tracks because what a lot of it is is um this is the church people imagining what's going on as he's preaching is uh and sort of like where some of the like maybe they could argue that some of the more like wild dream like logic plays into that the like yes this is happening we like concentrate on someone's face and then like we see this like reenactment of what's going to happen to everybody um and it is just wild to see because yeah you're just like watching these very ordinary people like being mowed down like coated in fake blood like being decapitated 
it's it's you can definitely see the through line. I, I know I can with this idea of Christian, like particularly evangelical, like American Christian ideas of almost fantasizing about victimization. My my, I go home and my family, who is evangelical, I they still talk about like how they are prosecuted. Sometimes there's like this notion of prosecution and this idea that. Like, yeah, it, it, it's it's like occurring. It's like about to happen, which it also plays into the end times, whatnot, that like this is going to this is starting everything off. So it's wild to watch them like acting out almost these weird fantasies through film of like their persecution in these made up situations. There's like this kind of fundamental mythology of like a kind of Christianity where, I mean, Jesus said a lot of things in the Bible but like wh- one of the things that he says like maybe once or twice is like regarding uh like oh people are going to uh reject you because of me and all that sort of stuff and there's a lot more like it's a lot more complicated than that but there is like definitely this like latching on to that specific part of to be a good christian is to be uh like hated and persecuted by the world and it's always really interesting how like the world is like defined because I mean, if you are in the South in like the 1970s or even like right now, like, you know, to be a, like a white evangelical Christian, you're not like on the margins of society. Or, you know, a lot of times like the broader mainstream culture reflects like what you're interested in. But there is like this perpetual fear slash like, like you said, Seth, like almost like looking forward to being challenged because of uh this kind of mythology about like uh oh if we're persecuted that means we're the real deal we're gonna like fight for jesus we're important yeah exactly we're on the forefront of uh you know we're like the vanguard between like heaven and hell and maybe that's part of what made the anti-communism stuff so exciting is that like that's how kind of america viewed itself in general like after world war ii and so then to like wrap christianity into that meant that like christianity had a seat in like geopolitics uh, in a way that like was different and like exciting and maybe empowering too. I mean, like there's a lot of people like including like Billy Graham and stuff and like evangelical history who had like political power and were like anti-communist and like, you know, advised presidents and things about how to make America more Christian, like one nation under God, like the under God and the pledge of allegiance and like in God we trust, like was added to the United States stuff like during the cold war rather than it being some like big thing like from the beginnings of our country yeah like pushes from charlton heston and things like that you know (laughs) and i don't know it's it's always so weird like from the outside looking in at this embattled perspective because it's like i i can't tell like how much of it is genuine i mean it, it stirred up genuine fear but like it's impossible for me to read estes perkle like on screen and think like do you truly believe these things that are you know, genuinely unhinged from whatever communism actually was from in, in reality. And like, whether or not there are problems with like communist states, these were not them. These were like fabrications. And are you thinking this, that this is like scarier than the political complexities? And so you're leaning into this? Or do you truly believe this stuff? I don't know. It's so out there. I think this says a lot about how they want to loop together all of these things. When you talk about wanting to you know, have 
uh, Christianity and specifically this brand of Christianity kind of get a seat at the table with these other issues that they are equating uh, this being a Christian nation with our way of life. And so we do have this fantasy of what if we were the marginalized ones and we see, you know, this completely lily white congregation being terrorized out in the streets by these these spray tanned kind of vaguely Cuban looking guys with indeterminate accents and machine guns gunning people down and specifically forcing them to, you know, denounce Jesus. So we do get that kind of fantasy where the the little boy is told that he needs to step on the picture of Jesus. And when he doesn't do it, oh, we get one scene. of the funniest shots in the movie, which is his fake head flying off after getting chopped off with a machete. <laughs> I have to admit, I kind of laughed aloud at that. It is so wild. And I think it one is. of the most telling things, though, is there's another scene where a boy is being told that he needs to denounce Jesus and capitalism. And capitalism. And his mother is trying to dissuade him from this. And he's saying, what's the big deal? I, I, I'm just going to say it to get out of this. But it is telling that he it's treated as equally um, heretical, mm -hmm. that he needs to denounce Jesus and capitalism. And we hear all throughout this that capitalism is a Christian thing. And then they make him shoot his mom. Yeah. Sis, tell mother, I know I'm a Christian, but God will forgive me if I lie about it just this once. Tommy, tell them the truth. Tell them that you are a Christian. I would never deny my Lord. I am not a Christian, and I'm not a capitalist either, but I'm not a Christian. Okay, Tommy, I believe you. Now let me review the facts. You say that you are not a Christian. Your mother says that she is. Take my gun. Shoot her. I couldn't shoot her. She's my mother. Your facts are right. She is your mother. But mother or not, she is a diseased animal and she must be slaughtered like any diseased animal. Now kill her or we will kill you. And they will kill you too. You know, we have him preaching about they're going to take away your 40-hour work week and your two weeks of paid vacation per year. And <laughs> How do you know it's the 1970s? It's because everyone has that, apparently. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> like, how novel. And we, we got to protect, we have to protect our exploitation of workers as, as well as we can, or else it could be worse. And uh, it's, it's fascinating to see that, that whole angle here, that this is as much about, you know, capitalism. All these things are intertwined that our way of life is all of these things. And there's this like interesting dynamic in the movie too where the depiction of communism seems to be like not just like some sort of evil alternative to like Christianity and capitalism, but like the polar opposite. So it's like you denounce Jesus, but then you have to worship the dictator. Like, it's not like, the, it treats communism not as like uh, atheistic, but that like the supreme ruler is the person that you worship and AKA Satan. Yeah, so what we get then are all these scenes of, you know, herding children into trucks who are then forced to work the fields while their parents are executed. Uh, we get what Seth mentioned before the, we're presented with all of these torture tactics that the communists use. So they, they pour salt in your mouth or they puncture your eardrums with a bamboo stick, which for some reason, Daniel, doesn't it look like they push it all the way through his head and out the other end? They have two, I think. It, but one was bloodier than the other. I was distracted by the projectile vomiting after. <laughs> oh my God, yeah. 
and I and I don't. You just have to wonder, like, does it? Does he somehow have like a book of war atrocities, or are these things that he is actually like twisted enough to come up with? They're presented as things that have happened in other countries, and he'll say that this is, yeah. you know, this scene of a a soldier coming in and saying, "Hey, I'm going to take your wife now," and that and whisking her from her home are presented as right. things that have happened. This is what it would look like here. And this is what will happen in the next 24 months if we don't act now. It, yeah. He makes that very clear, is that this is like on like tomorrow, this yeah. is going to happen. I do think like there's also something interesting too in which there's a few scenes that depict like what America is like now, um, it, like allegedly. Um, and like, for instance, uh, he talks about like our public schools have already caved to the communist menace or, or whatever. And then there's like a flash, like a, a, fl- a smash cut to this public school teacher who's telling his students, uh, he's like, <laughs> as I have said many times before, premarital sex is necessary. <laughs> and now let's discuss the erogenous zones <laughs> of the female body. <laughs> and it's like these crude drawings on the blackboard of naked people. <laughs> I love how he says the first of which is. And then it cuts away, <laughs> yep. which begs the question of what what are those zones? I'd love to know. Scientists will break it one day. <laughs> it, it reminds me of like now, you know, uh, as a teacher, I have to hear like in school board meetings or, or wherever, like, you know, the, the, the supposed menace of like critical race theory and whether or not like we're teaching children to hate America in schools. And like, is this what they're pec- picturing in their heads? Like I'm up there in front of the school like classroom saying, as I have said many times before, you should hate America. Uh, and now let's discuss all the ways to like kill the whitey. And like, I, there is like, I don't know. Sometimes I hear what people think goes on in public schools as a teacher. And I can't decide, are they that deluded about like what's going on that they imagine these sort of reenactments as being true? Or is this like a, a, a like politically expedient shorthand that they just kind of like don't really bother with and, and, and skip to that. And like, it's, again, it's, it's wild to think about, especially because again, like what did these people have to lose? Like, were there children in public schools at the time and experiencing this? I I think not. Um, the other thing that was happening around this time, I guess, was desegregation. And is, is, was that the true like communism that they were talking about? You know? Oh, sure. It seems likely that they would equate the two and it's becomes clear the bottom line of this is that they want to get you into the church, that there is a practical purpose to this, and that's all that it really cares about. And I think the reason this has become such a cult object is if this kind of lays bare how over the top and ridiculous these claims are. It's very easy to to see that and to mock this movie because even if all these scenes we're describing sound like something that is disturbing to watch and maybe it would have been for very small children i can't really like overemphasize just how kind of bargain basement all of this is so it is very much full of just unintentional comedy in that sense and you were saying that this is probably a bunch of their parishioners because you know there's all kinds of terrible acting people who can't even act like dead bodies convincingly and right a lot of times i kept looking in the background you know, even during the <laughs> even during the preaching scenes, and you'll see people kind of either smiling in the background, or there's one scene towards the end where uh, Judy, who is this girl that we kind of follow throughout, she's singled out in the audience because we see her getting dropped off at church, and she has flashbacks to her 
mother begging her to convert and to read the Bible, and she dies before she does. And so she has this kind of experience that we're supposed to be having. She hangs out with her evil boyfriend at the drinking bar. Who's pressuring her into, like, sex or something. Where they play sitars. They listen to sitars. Absolutely. And in the end, when she's being tearfully converted, there's a woman right behind her in the background who's clearly asleep. (laughs) Yes. Through the whole thing. (laughs) There's another scene that I picked out where it's, like, right after they mow down, like, a whole bunch of people and haul off this woman who is like clearly about to be raped. And then they cut back to the congregation and there's a little girl who's just like cracking up. She's just like laughing. It's just like, oh God. Seth, did your church ever do pageants? No. This kind of reminds me of those because they're all like a lot of them are like plays or narratives, you know, done by like church, uh, like, um, you know, congregants or whoever, and it'll be really goofy and like almost like comedic just because it's like so uh, amateur. But then it'll always like wrap in this like really intense, like emotional hook that's supposed to like convert you or, or like, you know, keep you from black backsliding or, or, or things like that. And yeah, that's what this reminded me of, because by the end, you were meant to take it seriously. I, I think there's a really interesting line to be drawn between this to kind of two different kinds of evangelical films that we've encountered in the past like couple decades. So one thing, as far as an exploitation filmmaker using all of those techniques, you could look to Mel Gibson, who we talked about in our episode about The Passion of the Christ, where this is a guy who makes movies that are extremely uh, violent and gory and exciting, whether it's Braveheart or Apocalypto or Hacksaw Ridge, but especially something like Apocalypto, which is just you know, flat out lurid excitement and extremely violent. And the way that he brings those skills to something like The Passion of the Christ, which is is to this date on this podcast, the most violent film that we have watched. And it's like Eli Roth. Yeah, exactly. So you have, you can almost see him as a modern Ron Orman in that way, at least in that particular example, but also the more common kind of, Christian film we get today is your God's not, uh, God is dead, and it's about social issues and the college professor who is persecuted and for trying to speak the truth and, you know, how America is being liberalized. Mark, you would say God is dead. It's, it's, it's God is not dead. Oh, God's not dead. Sorry. God's not dead. He's surely alive. (laughs) See, you're, you're really showing your cards there. I had it right the first time. Shut up. And, uh, This is almost like bridging the difference between that, where we have this just rant about the liberalization of America that is going towards godlessness combined with this horrific vision of of violence and trying to goose you with whatever B-movie tactics it possibly can. I don't know um, how old you guys are, so maybe this is like not quite like, you know, in like whatever, like, uh, you know, growing up experience that you had, but like two very significant events that happened like that were both political and like religious. Like when I was growing up in church were um, the invasion of Iraq and like nine 11 and that whole like war on terror milieu, which like was instantly, you know, created like a confluence of political expediency with like religious identity, you know, because it became almost like a second crusade. And I remember I was homeschooled at the time in like a conservative Christian homeschool, like co-op and uh, just reflecting back on the absolutely wild 
like propaganda that I was fed. Um, and I think that like, it didn't matter to fact check it because of the quote unquote, like metaphysical stakes or like, you know, the apocalyptic stakes of war in the Middle East, you know, and like what that was supposed to be connected to with, with scripture. And so like, there was like this true, like animation of um, religious faith, like compels you to defend the United States. And the other thing that I remember growing up was uh, the Columbine shooting, which like was, there was like a lot of misinformation that went around with regards to like that the killers in Columbine had like specifically targeted Christians and uh, a lot of this stuff like, you know, later came out to be like completely untrue. But um, that was like talked about in youth group and things like that about like, you will have a time in your life where you will be asked to choose between death and like Jesus. And like these things all kind of like flowed together into this uh, like two pronged, like a, like attack on people's psyche, which is like one, like you're supposed to be scared out of your mind about like physical pain, but that's also supposed to draw you into these um, like uh, kind of metaphysical claims about like Christianity and eternal life. But that's also supposed to make you like support like the, the kind of like, you know, uh, neoliberal capitalists, you know, status quo at the time, you know, in like the early 2000s, like when I was uh, hearing this stuff. And it's, it's, it's really insidious. And I actually kind of found the end of like a lot of if, if footmen tire you is, is very goofy, but I actually found the end kind of upsetting for that very reason. Uh, like when it actually pivots to the lady, um, Judy breaking down in tears and converting. Cause it was like, I remember those things being said to me and to others. And I remember like, I remember going to like, like summer camp and stuff and like preachers would like be doing that same message. I remember like, you know, leaving in tears and there is something about like when you don't have like the context or the like uh state of mind to, res to, to like understand the kind of fundamental ridiculousness of that sort of thing. It, it is extremely effective and extremely traumatizing and, I felt bad at the end of this movie. I did too. One of the most disturbing things about it is that really lengthy sequence where they're talking about her mother and the promises and how you've, you've fundamentally failed the person who brought you into this world um, by, by choosing yourself and ex choosing to like follow your own individual path, right? Instead, you've like, you betrayed your mother, which is just, of course, like, I have my own like issues with my family as far as that's concerned and feeling like I've, I've disappointed them in one way or another. Like, so it's, which is, uh, I remember like that being like, a, it's been a tactic in my family. It's been a tactic in, I remember being in church and things like that. And it being like some kind of low blows like that. Like you're going to, you know, you're also going to disappoint grandma too. If you like do these things, uh, you know, act this way. It's really like it cuts to the chase. What's the matter, little boy? Where's my mama and my daddy? You killed them, haven't you? Yeah. Think of how much better off you will be. The state will provide for you and take care of your every need. Much better than your mother or father either. I won't go state. I want my mama and my daddy. It's very primal the emotions that they appeal to, you know, the easiest way that they can get to you. So that's going to be guilt and banding us together, you know, against a common enemy, which in this point in time during the Cold War 
would have been communists. And after 9-11, it was the phrase radical Islam that was going to do the exact same thing. You know, they were going to blow up all of the city streets and come into the suburbs and you're all going to have to, uh, you know, they're going to take your women away and make them wear veils. And, you know, are trying to define what our way of life currently is and assuming that it's the same for everybody and that everything is perfectly fine. And uh, it's a complete distortion, like, like you were saying, about the way that the world works and the the real challenging things that, uh, you know, a, a faith could challenge you to do in a good way, anything that could be difficult. That's what makes this movie such a fascinating time capsule because it it's very, very tied to its specific time and place, while at the same time, you can see how it completely hasn't evolved that much in how uh, these things are still being presented today. And it, whether it's religious or if it's just, you know, Fox News going on rants about the same kind of things that we see Estes Perkle rant about here. And that was one of the more interesting things here was seeing just how little all of these reactionary talking points have changed over the years. We're still hearing about, oh, cities still are having the highest all-time rates of crime and we're still teaching sex in schools and this movie talks about yeah. Sunday morning cartoons. Well, today we're just talking about the fucking uh, gender of M&Ms and how that's corrupting children. It's like not different <laughs> at all. Right. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. Speaking of which, I do want to know what cartoons those were he was talking about. Like he, I was right. expecting to see another cutaway. <laughs> oh, man. And he, and he's just like, have you guys watched these cartoons? You say they're just cartoons, but they're filthy. And I was I wanted to see what the filthy cartoon was. Yeah, in 71, what were they watching? The the Flintstones or yeah. straight up Looney Tunes hitting each other with hammers. Like, <laughs> that guy has never seen a, a television show before. <laughs> like, yeah. So I I do I am kind of curious what you guys think about this uh, stylistically if anything surprised you because we've talked about a lot of stuff that's uh funny that we we do see outrageous things, and that's part of the fascination of this and why there's been a cult following, I think. But uh, I found that a lot of this movie is given over to the preaching in kind of a tedious way. And so yes. we might be making it sound more exciting than it is. And I think a, some of that goes back to Perkle himself because this is not a, a preacher who um, is particularly fiery like a Billy Graham. I don't know, charisma-wise, I he seemed more like a Mitch McConnell kind of type. He's absolutely one note. He seems like very uncomfortable with being in front of the camera, to be honest. Like he, yeah, it is. That's such a weird in all three of his, like uh, Ron Orman's Christian movies that I, that I watched. Um, Estes Perkle's like looking into the camera, like preaching is always like the kind of backbone and it never becomes completely natural even though like presumably or uh perkle's got practice by the time it's like you know the heaven one that's the third one right years of this yeah it's almost uncanny like um it like the way that he speaks like there's this particular intonation that is like i i don't know like i saw people on letterboxd calling it lynchian and i think that that's kind of right but not lynchian in the sense of like what like a lot of people consider Lynchian like a racer head or something like that, but Lynchian and specifically David Lynch and like how he talks, like that weird affect that David Lynch has. He says things like, golly gee. Yeah, like Estes Perkle is <laughs> like the Southern preacher version of that almost where there's like a very strange, like uncanniness about like the stiltedness of how he talks to the camera that is is really stylistically bizarre. The muscles seem 
unable to move. He seems frozen. His <laughs> face seems frozen. And his mouth is making the exact same movement every time. And it's the same, like, intonation, like, in everything that he says. Whether it's, like, talking about how the centipedes will come out of your eyeballs when the communists come here. <laughs> or there's, he's talking about, like, there are beautiful sapphire rooms in heaven. And he's still, like, <laughs> mad about the sapphire rooms in heaven. And it, it, it's it's just bizarre because he, he does not change for any subject it's just he's he's pissed at it all so this is usually the point before we switch films we like to go to each person and ask them if you could would you unwatch this movie and you can approach that question however you want to with whatever kind of reasoning um but also just to give you guys a chance there's any final thoughts you want to give about this particular one before we move on uh, to the next so uh, i want to give michael the last word so seth where do you land um I had seen this movie once before, and I did find it fascinating as like an odd object, which is what it is, which is those are my favorite things, like even more than sometimes than general narrative good movies. I'm sometimes more interested in this is a strange object that I found in my hands suddenly, but uh, it was definitely a slog to get through it a second time, I gotta say, because um, it is just bile and it is just hateful um, and it is just misinformation uh, to the point of it being like, I don't know, maybe it's giving it, you know, Estes too much credit to put it on the level of like something like birth of a nation. But I think it's comparable in a way of like, I'm of like instigating anger and instigating hate, which I, I can imagine like this film floating around quite a bit in church congregations at the time. Um, I sometimes worry if like my family had seen it somehow or like, I don't know, like I like to think that they're not that, that they weren't going to churches that were that far gone or something. But uh, surely there must've been like lines drawn in the sand somewhere here. But um, yeah, there is just something about it that is just so particularly from this particular preacher's standpoint it's just spending too much time in his brain. Um, it is difficult. Uh, I don't know that I would unwatch it necessarily because it is just fat. It is fascinating. It's something I w- could have never avoided given my background in Christianity. Um, and it is kind of a fascinating, like both of these films, all three of the Ron Orman, which there are three like religious based film um, that they did. They sort of characterize this uh, as, as, as kind of a prologue almost to the satanic panic, which was right around the corner, like later 70s into the 80s, which was definitely like a whole other like moral panic. This is more tied specifically to Christianity, but it, it does feel like it's it's already starting here, which is an interesting document. Yeah, I want to hear Estes Perkle's take on Dungeons and Dragons or something like that. Like, what do you, what must yeah. he have made of that? <laughs> he, I don't know. He might have had a stroke <laughs> or Harry by Potter. Him. I'm sure he would have been a big, oh, a big geez. fan of that. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I agree, Seth. That it's 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 a particularly hard question to answer in this context because on one hand, this doesn't really live up to you know terms like Lynchian, like Michael said, or as far as it is bizarre that it exists, but it also is so kind of cut rate in its own way. And there's so much of just the sermonizing in it that it doesn't quite 
live up as to the entertainment value that you would normally get from a, a cult film like that. And But on the other hand, it, there is insight and some entertainment value there, even though it's all inadvertent. So I, I don't know. In my rational brain, I guess I would unwatch it. Um, but on the other hand, it doesn't seem as necessarily as insidious as something like Birth of a Nation just because it's too hapless. <laughs> Where Birth of a Nation was actually using is this example of using great artistry to suck you in, where this one is really the bluntest of instruments and is so easy to see through. It almost seems less dangerous, even though to a certain audience, it certainly would be. But uh, I don't I guess if I had to pick, I would unwatch it. But there's, it's certainly something to to regard and talk about. Uh, but what about you, Michael? I don't think I wouldn't rewatch it in a in a perfect world. I I would unmake this movie. But <laughs> yes, we've never had an unmake. That's if great. If you were God, I, this movie should unexist. <laughs> but I think that like what bothers me about this movie is not this movie in particular because like I don't know. It's so ramshackle and like you said, hapless that like it in and of itself doesn't seem capable of great evil, but it is a symptom of like just such a larger, like grotesque um, version of Christianity. And like, like you make a good point, Seth, about like how this is even before like the moral majority, like that whole, like the kind of like um, encapsulation and like ensconcement of like, what's kind of like the modern, like, you know, American evangelicalism that's like very tied to, like the Republican party and like these kind of moral panics that, you know, um, uh, bolster like, you know, uh, right, right wing, like uh, illiberal stuff. Um, I, I guess as long as that sort of strain of Christianity exists in a meaningful form in the United States, like I'm interested in things that give me insight into that. And I mean, this is a particularly ludicrous version of that, that I, really didn't uh enjoy very much by the end but i i don't know like there is the the thing that's so wild about like uh a lot of that world like evangelical christianity and especially when you get more toward like the fundamentalist end of that evangelical spectrum there's like very like anti anti-secular to the extent that um you know there's this um uh, push away from quote unquote, like worldly things, it, they create their own ecosystem of um, reality and media. And in a lot of ways, it's hard to see into that um, in any meaningful way, unless you like, actually just look at like what their media and their books are like. Uh, there were so many things um, that I was told and that we had big conversations about that. I think that no one else outside of like the kind of like theological and like, kind of like uh, kind of, evangelical world like cared about like whether or not like the earth is 6,000 years old versus like, you know, the billions of years old that it is like, I think that's the thing that most people don't even think about most, but that was that, um, dominated, uh, the things that like I learned about and, and talked about with people. And that's not even touched on in this movie, but like that sort of thing that the, this, this kind of like, uh, like, right-wing Christian nationalism has its own like ecosystem and understanding of the world. And I think sometimes some people 
underestimate the extent to which it is completely like an alternative vision of like reality as opposed to simply like, well, they just are misogynist or, or, or they are anti-gay and stuff, which is also true. But a lot of those kind of like what, what ends up being like materially harmful things are protected by a, ver- a vision of the world that is like kind of hermetically sealed off. And I guess that's a long way of saying I'm glad I watched this to the extent that I'm glad something out there is capable of, you know, showing me these things or reminding me of these things again. But it wasn't like a fun movie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, fun. When they uh the little they made the little kids uh tie their dad up and like from dangling from a tree and they had to like pull him up and down oh and every time gosh. they pulled him down he landed on a pitchfork. Oh, I forgot that, <laughs> that was to mention that was that crazy. Scene. Who the fuck came up with that one? Like that's what communists do. Was this Estes Perkle coming up with this stuff or Ron Orman? Like I, I I'd be curious like where the source of some of this stuff came from because like you get the impression that Ron Orman was the guy bringing the grizzly stuff because of his background. But like, I don't know, the Cestus Perkle guy seems completely capable of having thought that up too. you know, having spent three movies with him now. It's in his speeches. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. He never could have visualized it that way, but he was certain. I think he definitely got off on adding some vividness to his words. Whichever one of them picked the title for this gets perfect marks from me. That is such a cool title. Absolutely. Yeah. No argument there. That's the King James Bible. It could be the title of like a like a Godspeed You Black Emperor album or something. Oh, easily. <laughs> Crush. Well, give yeah, give that credit to the Bible. Um, just like we can give I Marx, I think, was the one who said that the fundamental tenet of communism was lowering your dad on pitchforks. So that's there's no arguing with that. I'm always lowering my dad's score on pitchfork. Before we move on, I do I do think uh, we need a we need to give credence to the, uh, what is it? Jesus is stupid. Communism is good or something like that. What, what was the, <laughs> oh, like, they make them sit they in chairs that don't have backs, wooden chairs that don't have backs. And they make them say, Jesus is stupid. Communism is good. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up, Michael, because that was that might be my favorite part of the movie. I can't believe I forgot to mention it, too, because so, they say that we're so all going to be rounded up into camps and, and they're going to be brainwashed. And this... Br- insidious brainwashing is loudspeakers literally saying communism is good christianity is stupid <laughs> over and over and over it's so and funny <laughs> who could argue with that jeez but speaking of fun um i did find the follow up to this which was 1974's the burning hell to be a (laughs) much more entertaining experience than (laughs) this was. And maybe it's because the whole purpose of this, and once again, we have Perkle giving his sermon. It's the same basic structure. We even have someone being converted throughout as he's listening to him. But the topic is hell. And so we get a lot of visualizations of exactly what hell is like. And if you are a, a fan of maybe 70s uh, Italian horror movies or things like that, there's a lot more to look at here that I that I found a little more engaging. <laughs> Does that shock you? Well, it should. The glimpses into hell almost remind me of like shittier versions of Kenneth Anger movies. Like, yeah, just, it is like a parade of close-ups of just like there's dirt on me, there's 
there's worms on me, there's fire around, and they all look like just like wild. It reminds me of like inauguration of the pleasure domes or something, but for <laughs> dummies. Is it Satan or just like a demon that has like all the face paint on? Like almost like a like a Fellini character or something. Yes. Yeah, he had like a many checkered face, uh, and it, which they're playing with the whole thing that like Satan was the most beautiful of God's angels, right? Um, so I guess that's their interpretation. Also, best actor in all of these movies is Satan, definitely. Like, yes, he's all like hands down. Now, is it Satan? Because I found it interesting that they never seem to really mention Satan himself in this whole thing. And I wasn't sure if this was just a demon or a minion that was down there. He's got this white makeup on and a hood and this weird kind of scaly, shiny outfit. It kind of reminded me of like death in the seventh seal or maybe Bill and Ted's bogus journey. And oh, well, there's that guy too. Yeah, that, that's the Palpatine looking guy. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, are we talking about, are you talking about the guy with the, like the painted squares on his face at the yeah. end? Yeah. I assumed yeah. he was Satan, but they never said uh. that he was Satan. So I don't know. I wonder if they had a hard time getting their parishioners to play Satan. So they'd be like, no, don't worry. You're not actually Satan. We won't say that you're Satan. And these guys, these guys could have possibly been actual actors, not like great ones, but they didn't seem as in, quite as inept as the people in the previous film. But. They didn't have to do Cuban accents in this right now. <laughs> Which quite often those Cuban accents became Southern accents. It was wild to see like this mutated version of a Southern Cuban accent. I really enjoyed that in this movie because besides the hell stuff, we get these historical, um, biblical stories. So we see people, the Israelites wandering the desert, rebelling against Moses and Aaron. And, you know, we have a guy in this outrageous giant cotton ball beard as Moses. (laughs) So many of those. It's normal to see a biblical epics where everyone's speaking in modern English, but the hearing it with Southern accents does give it a particular kind of comic value. Sure does. When when God Himself has a Southern twang, There's a lot of whiteness. Going on. <laughs> it's almost like Last Temptation of the Christ, where like all of like the Scorsese like crew is just like speaking in these like New York Italian accents. Oh, I swear I saw Harvey Keitel at one point. I'm gonna have to do my Harvey Keitel now. That hey Jesus, uh, what are we gonna do with all these loaves? <laughs> Burning hell. <laughs> That's probably not the first time I even did that on this podcast, but yeah, this one has a pretty similar setup to its predecessor. I mean, it is first and foremost like a lot of the runtime is still devoted to Estes's preaching, um, which he's still they're still there, still listening still to there. him, still the same like old grandmas nodding their heads and stuff with their horn rim glasses. Uh, still the same really annoying shot that they keep returning to, like where they like cut to his back talking, but it's it just is not convincing that it's like the same shot of him t- yeah. saying whatever <laughs> it is he's saying. I don't know why, but that like annoyed the hell out of me every time it happened. But uh, there is again another plot line in this one where there's a instead of a woman, it's this these two kind of hippie guys they look like they might be in the doors or something or the hell's angels and they got um there's like a short one and a tall one and they are talking to estes about um mr long who is 
a, a, he must be some kind of cultist that they made up in this. Uh, I who, think, you know, I'm going to say like a Christian, Christian alternative. I don't know. Yeah. I think he's more supposed to be these are these guys are supposed to be like California Jesus movement people, right? Like those yeah, sort Jesus of like people. Yeah, like the kind of like hippie Jesus folks. And I cuz like there's so Larry much Norman. of this movie that yeah, that guy that kind of thing cuz there's so much of this movie that's like in as much as the last movie was like communism is the antithesis to Christianity. In this movie it's like this other kind of like kind of liberal um like spineless Christianity that can't even admit that there's a hell that is the enemy right now. And like, I think it, they're like meant to like embody that sort of like that sort of thing that Estes Perkle clearly just hates um, because they're leading people into hell and they don't even realize it. Yeah. It seems like their only crime is not believing in the literal hell. They don't even seem like that bad of people. And this movie does have a very specific thesis, which is that there's all these other wishy-washy brands of Christianity trying to tell mm-hmm. you that hell is on is our time now on earth, or it's just the absence of God, or it's anything but this literal burning eternity with maggots. And the Bible tells you that, yes, in fact, it is. And all the people who died thousands of years ago and went to hell are still there burning right now. And they will be to the point where he takes out this chart to show you like how many zeros are in oh my a, a billion and billions and billions of years. Oh yeah. That's a lot of zeros. To, to emphasize this to you. <laughs> like, honey, we're talking about infinity. Numbers don't matter anymore. Like that's the whole thing about infinity. I don't have to look at the zeros anymore or at least take the one away. Um, there's just such a, yeah, it is interesting. He has such a chip on his shoulder about like people who are talking about that. Like, no, it is the grave. It's just you just die and like you just won't go to heaven or something like that. Or yeah, he like spend he spends a whole section of the movie talking about worms and how like all right, there's these people. They keep coming up to me and they keep saying that they're not actual worms in hell. Well, they're wrong. They really are literal worms. And he like breaks down the etymology of the Greek words that are used and everything. And he's like, yeah, fucking worm. I got you, bitch. <laughs> and it's maggots that we see, by the way, which I don't think yeah. is the same it's thing. It's a little different. But it's way grosser. That way grosser. seems to be deviating from the word of the Lord. I'd rather have worms than maggots. Yeah, I don't think Ron Orman had read the original Greek. <laughs> <laughs> he says that he did, though. And that's where he gets the Cheech and Chong guy who's talking about alternative Christianity ideas. He's like, well, no, I guess I can't read Greek. He says, think of the odor. Think of the continual itchiness. <laughs> There's so much of this movie that is like bent on like, like kind of uh, Estes Perkle, like flexing his like Bible muscles. Like I've read the original Greek and like, oh, this verse um, uses this word to say worm and nowhere else in the Bible is it used like that except in this other place where it literally means worm. But it's like, it's funny, like, as someone who's also read the Bible, a lot of this stuff simply is not in the Bible. <laughs> like, as much as he's like, I'm going by God's holy word, like, there's a lot of this stuff. And I don't know, like, this is beside the point of the movie, but, like, the Bible, it presents, like, very little, like, concrete detail about what the afterlife is going to be like, which is kind of, like, always really funny about how, like, biblical literalists are thinking about how, like, obvious it is that like heaven is this way or hell is this way and like if you go and like look at the verses that are supposed to be describing it it doesn't give you a ton of detail so this movie like adds a ton of extra textual stuff to the bible verses that is funny considering how much of the movie is 
him saying, I'm just telling you what's literally in the Bible. No need to read yourself. Take my word for it. Facts. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> which is all to say that at least, I don't know, we get a lot of gnarly stuff happening in hell during this. And we'd see Yeah, this Ron kinda... Orman is having a hoot. He's having a good time. <laughs> and yeah. I could see this just traumatizing the hell out of children at oh. at a mass, it, much more so than the other film. I mean, just starting with, uh, again, like the big framing device with the Cheech and Chong guys who are like the Jesus people who eventually leave being like, you know, you're too heavy about it, man. You dig? We're out of here. And then they go out and ride on their motorcycles. And <laughs> boy, it's like just a long sequence of just like, oh, they're still driving, still driving, still driving. And then pow, finally you're awoken by the fact that the guy has fallen over and not only like died, but like lost his head somehow <laughs> by crashing his motorcycle. Bike crashes are a leading cause of beheadings. I think, according to this film. <laughs> Which, oh yeah. my God. And he just went straight to hell. He just, no no pit stops. He just goes straight to hell. Well, uh, right, yeah. Know. Then the, um, the, the one guy who survives, like, wanders back in a daze to the congregation while Estes is talking, and he, he, like, Estes comes up to him, stopping his tirade, and is like, you know, like, well, what's going on? And the guy's like, He's dead. My friend's dead. Surely he's not in hell, right? And Estes is just like, I believe he is burning in hell as we speak. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, man. I love how he says, uh, you know, I don't want to rub it in in your time of grief. But he is already (laughs) burning an eternal hellfire. (laughs) Just to let you know, honey. That's again, like one of the, it's just like one of the damnedest things about these movies and just in general, this <laughs> ethos of like kind of like scare scare you straight, like, you know, manipulate you into like our particular theologies is like just the complete lack of like any sort of empathy, like to be told that your friend is going to like experience like torture for eternity. And it, that is beginning right now. Like he shows no sympathy or or anything about that. And like you have to imagine if you truly believe that you know that is happening to a person the decent thing is to at least like grieve about that maybe like think like boy that sure is tough man i'm so sorry like but no he's he goes right to like this kind of self-righteous like i told these kids i don't it's just so it's so ugly it it strikes me as either like self-absorbed and self-righteous or like somehow the opposite where it is just like a like someone who is just so convicted and cannot like 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 maniacally is like stuck on this loop about hell that like is a reality to this person which in a way i can like understand almost sometimes i feel this about some christians in a certain respect like if that is true that like by me just going about my day and doing what i do and not like doing x y and z to get to heaven like I'm going, this is going to happen to me. Like I would, I, I can almost like sympathize with the idea of someone who is just like going to chase me down the street and like try and force me to like go to heaven rather than like be eat, beaten by worms or something, or just like wreck every single conversation we have. Of course, I don't necessarily want that <laughs> because I don't personally believe in a lot of that aspect of things. But uh, yeah, the, 
It's just such conviction. I think one of the pompous, like irritating things about Estes Perkel in these movies, though, is that he doesn't strike me as the kind of person who's going to like chase you down in the street, like out of some like sort of desperation. Like he seems like very content to just say, you know what, if you want to come into my church and hear what I have to say and then get converted, fine. But, you know, if you're not, then, oh, well, you know, fuck you. Like he has that kind of attitude. He seems sick of it. Yeah. Yeah. He has that kind of attitude where he's like, if if you, you know, if you come in here and want to convert, that's fine. But otherwise, I'm just going to talk about you burning in hell. Like, I don't I don't he doesn't he just doesn't seem to care about people's souls like who choose not to care about him. Like and maybe that's just like an efficiency tactic. You know, if he's got to maximize saving souls, you know, you don't want to waste time on the people who are already like lost. But still, like, I don't know, man. I think that he sees this as his ultimate trump card, that there's there is nothing that could convince you more than this, and there is no wiggle room here. And I think one of the most interesting things about the tactics in this movie for me was the way that it kind of preemptively and openly acknowledges like the central paradox of this vision of hell, right? Which is, what kind of a choice is faith if the only alternative is literally eternal unending torment until forever and that what's you know what what does that say about the reason to be faithful or any of that and he very explicitly just says well yeah and they even they even have some people voice the argument of well what kind of a you know faith is it if i'm just scared into following it and he says, no, there's nothing wrong with that. 40 years ago, I was terrified of hell and asked Jesus to save me. And he did. And look, I didn't make this up. So whether you think it's a good reason or not, if you don't do it, you'll burn. So how can you argue with that? That's like that, that justifiable fear it, of this God. Doesn't, it doesn't bother yeah. it at all by that fact. Is it this movie or the heaven one that has the parable of Lazarus and the rich man? This one. Is this one? Yeah. So like that's a really interesting story in the Bible and and presented here like th- this movie embellishes it a little bit but basically like the gist of it being that like, you know, there's this rich man who like, you know, kind of is just living living his life, you know, top dog and then there's this like poor, you know, schmuck who isn't it just has this miserable life, but he he loves God and is saved. And so he goes to heaven when he dies and the rich man goes to hell. And the rich man is like, wait, can you can you please like send people from hell to tell my family that hell exists and that uh, they better be saved or they're going to end up like me? And the answer is something like they already have all the information that they need because of the prophets of you know, given scripture and that sort of thing. And I think that's almost like Estes Perkle's animating philosophy is that that kind of thing where it's like, I'm not going to send people out to grab people from the clutches of Satan, but you know, they should already know that, you know, all this stuff's out there. It's obviously in the Bible. And if you're not, if you're just ignoring that stuff, then, oh, well, man, like that's almost, I don't know, like that, that's such a strange and striking story in the Bible that, uh, this movie of course, like finds, um, and for some reason, he goes on this whole uh, like tirade about how it's not a parable, uh, even though it is. But still, um, I don't know. Like that, there is like a casualness to it about like, well, 
this is just the way things are. And if people aren't going to be realistic about it, then I guess that they deserve to be in hell. Yeah, it really does feel like he he ran into some, he got handed some new age pamphlets somewhere that was talking about hell not being literal. And, and he threw a tantrum and this movie was the result of it. No, I often feel that for sure, where there is this sort of like, it's there. It's like quite often it's this, the, the line is, it's there in black and white. If you didn't, if you didn't get it, you, 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 your own, it's your own fault. You know, it's very much that kind of idea where it's just, there's no, yeah, the, the, which is, it's prevalent. And especially in, in this sort of like world that Estes is in, which is this like, just no compassion, as you say, no mercy for anyone who would have like understandable doubt or any sort of like, uh, confliction, uh, being a doubting Thomas wanting to touch the damn wound, you know? Yeah, which is even more, I know that we're not going to talk about this movie specifically, but like the the Believer's Heaven, which was the last film that Ron Orman made with Estes Perkel, it's like full of that kind of like schadenfreude, like, you know, boy, heaven's going to be awesome because it's so good. And oh, man, those people in hell are just like, what chumps? You know, they don't know what they're missing. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of why I'm not, I'm much less interested in the Believer's Heaven than the Burning Hell. Um, because of that, I don't know if this movie has anything, it's that kind of morbid horror movie appeal and seeing the effects and everything. And I can't imagine that the seeing the opposite of that would be, would have even a cult appeal to it. Maybe that's why people don't really talk about that one as much. So I think in the end, and I'll, I'll make these my closing thoughts, cause it's really all that I have left to, to say about this is, uh, you know, this might not be of any more actual worth than the other movie, but it is a little more watchable. It seems shorter, even though it's longer than the other one. And maybe that's just because of the balance of imagery to the preaching. Right. But also it's it's kind of a double-edged sword that it's this is less political. It's less about, uh, you know, conservative reactionary politics than the other one, which on one hand makes it less of a, time capsule and a little less insightful as far as what you can get out of it as an object. But at the same time, that does make it a little uh, less insufferable and easier to glide over <laughs> the other stuff just as an aesthetic experience. But neither of these these films are are something that are, are going to give you anything of worth at, fa- at face value, at least. So I don't know if I would be I want to unwatch this one in principle, but I, I don't really regret getting getting to see how Ron Ormond put together his vision of hell. I do think like this movie is definitely less political, but I think in this in, in like a weird way, like this movie is showing what's like a, like to the like true believer of like what Ron Ormond's saying. Like this movie is what's truly at stake in the battle uh, between capitalism and communism, um, because you know the if Footman tire you like we talked about doesn't really present any sort of like material reality of what like you know a society is truly like under communism or even under capitalism but it mostly like makes you afraid of losing your family and losing your faith and this movie then shows well what does it mean to like to not be to deny jesus it doesn't really matter like what happens to you on earth what matters to you is that you're going to spend you know uh, a one followed by 300 zeros in hell with maggots on your face and in like i think i think that's like one of the things that is true a lot like for true believers is that like the politics 
uh, of like the reactionary like like rights are like a means to a theological end rather than the other way around uh, for like the people who truly believe. And so to be scared of a political outcome you don't want is to be scared of hell, not to be scared of something else. Um, and I think that, you know, churches are full of people who believe that but churches are also full of people who actually do care about the material stuff, like to, they fear communism because they would, you know, lose their political power or whatever. But I think for someone who like is a is the real deal, like the burning hell shows like the the deepest fear and like an entire nation being condemned to hell. Good point. Good point. Well, Seth, do you have any final thoughts on this? Anything about its unwatchability or anything we didn't get to? I mean, they are pretty difficult. And again, I think what I bring is some of my baggage, which makes it more of a interesting experience. But at the same time, there is something really aesthetically like strange and interesting about all three of these films. Like I, I do think they, I don't know, like I'm not going to say they get better by watching all three of them, but there is something to the experience of like following like the progression and like culmination of all these ideas and like even just like little silly motifs and the reuse of costumes and the constant, like one of the things is like the constant motif of like the, these plastic silly looking crowns, um, which I mean, it almost accidentally, like just, just uh, like lingering on that example, just accidentally wind up being this kind of effective metaphor is like it, the, the Kings look silly in this, which the Kings are bound to this, this earthly riches, which are, you know, made, meaningless in the face of heaven and hell, right? Thanks, but no thanks. We have much better things to do than to let some carpenter's son tell me what to do with my time. Good day, preacher. Burning Hell in particular, I, I do think, yeah, is maybe the one that I... I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm kind of torn, because, yeah, Believer's Heaven is definitely one that I think is, like, the most, like... If you don't really have much religious bag, baggage, it's probably not all that interesting, and it is the most boring. But yeah, I would. It was kind of a toss-up for me to see like which one of these I would like Footman or Burning Hell would like throw at just someone who is on the outside just looking at it for just a purely Gonzo like Mondo kind of exploitation end of things. Which I guess I kind of lean towards Footman because um, it is just so like it's the most gruesome I think, but. I don't know. Burning Hell is interesting because it is like more fantastical, I guess. But uh, at the end of the day, I would still agree with Michael, though, that like, yeah, I wouldn't unwatch any of these, but I would love to unmake them. Ah, And I mean that from the perspective of myself as a like mostly agnostic to atheist person at this point. But also I can't help but like interrogate the side of me that still like lingers and like the i don't know I, I i still hold myself in this sort of i can imagine a parallel universe me would have like stayed with the faith and i can't imagine myself being someone in the faith who would agree with any real aspect of these films and their existence <laughs> like yeah yeah i mean as someone who has stayed in the faith like at least for me like there became a point in my life i wasn't quite raised in this level of fire and brimstone uh 
you know, Christianity, but the theology was like functionally the same, even if the delivery was a little different. But like for me, it became unsustainable. Like I couldn't, um, this wasn't something that I could maintain, uh, like this understanding of the world. Like, and it was unsustainable just because I couldn't, I couldn't experience the things in the world that I had experienced, or I couldn't know the people that I knew and see their experiences and still think that this was, this was the way things are. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I think that if you're, if you're in the faith, you either have to find a way for your faith to evolve or you become someone who is like opposed to the things that might make your faith evolve. And I think that's definitely the route that Estes Perkle has gone, which is that anything that is like different from this kind of, uh, understanding of the world becomes an enemy that he has to tear down. Um, because if not, like they, you know, they present credible uh, threats to the way that your faith is practiced. Cause I, I do think that on some level, like this level of just contempt for the world is unsustainable. You can't maintain this while also like understanding the world as a place that you have to care about and with people in it that you have to love. Which is also biblical, you know, like, and you're also encouraged in that way, right? Right. You know, ultimately, like, it's down to praxis. Like, how how are you going to act? Like, what's your position going to be in the world? And I, I don't think that you can have a position like this um, and not end up this kind of bitter, like, oppositional force, you know? And... Uh, the people who aren't like, I think are usually the people who, and, and the people who stay in congregations like this, I think are the people who usually are not very like ideologically driven and they're kind of, you know, more in church for the human connection, you know, which I think is also something to be pointed out in these movies is like the vulnerable people have lost people in their lives and they have, you know, that's being filled by the end of these movies with their conversions into a whole group of people that will care for them. And, I think a lot of people are in Christianity for that and that this sort of stuff is incidental to them. But, you know, I think if you take these ideas seriously, you can't not become this kind of Estes Perkle type. Yeah. It's kind of, it's kind of revealing that the people who get converted that we follow in both of these films, one is coming off the loss of her mother. The other is coming off from literally minutes earlier. His friend was beheaded in a motorcycle accident, like on They're his way literally there, practically. exploited. And uh, (laughs) so you and they both end up, you know, very tearful at the end and the preacher is being very reassuring. And uh, but you're right, this this might be the most, you know, this particular tactic with hell and everything is might be the most, you know, immediate and effective. But the appeal is very short term. And you're right that you don't. Perkle doesn't look like someone who has a lot of fun that you want to necessarily end up like coming away from this. Well, so Michael, you you wanted to unmake uh, if footmen tire you. So, what, what's the final verdict on the burning hell? I mean, I think I think for me, honestly, because I the the place I am with my faith is so much less emphasis on the afterlife, you know, which I kind of view as like a pretty big unknown. Uh, it doesn't. There there is something actually a little bit more of a like threatening and insidious to me about the anti-communist stuff, which I think really still animates a lot of things in in our country and in in Christianity. And it doesn't feel as threatening or or as like unsettling to have all this kind of cartoony portrayal of hell, even though I realize that the two are kind of linked, like I said before. So um, 
I mean, I probably still, I wouldn't want something like this to exist anyway. So I guess I can still say I'd like to unmake this one because it's, if you're not in the position that I am or we are where you can kind of laugh about this. And if you're presenting, if this is presented to you as real, like that is very still like upsetting. Um, you know, if you think hell is real, and I remember thinking like, you know, growing up, like just being terrified of, of, you know, dying and going to hell, you know, so there is still some really gross like manipulation going on here. But like me as like right now, I didn't quite have the visceral reaction I did to some of if it would tire you just because I don't know, there's not that many people left in my life who talk about hell in these kind of terms, but there's still plenty of people that I run into who talk about like public school teachers or, you know, the threat of communism or, you know, whatever insert left wing boogeyman. So I don't know like that. This one felt more like returning home in a weird way. I was like, Oh yeah, I remember this stuff and kind of moving on, but I, it's still very, like I said, if you're young and like told that this is the way that the world actually is like it, those that leaves, that leaves scars, you know, there are people who still are trying to like sort through like what that, you know, the kind of like trauma, like spiritually that that's done to them. And so even though it didn't quite upset me as much as the first one, like I, I'd rather something like this not exist. (laughs) Well, Michael, thank you so much for bringing this, uh, level of insight and experience to these films. Oh, I'm, I'm happy to do it. Cause I had not heard of this guy. Uh, when Seth approached me about this, I had to look him up and, um, I'm fascinated now. I mean, he, he's fast. Like Orman and P- Perkle, the both are just fascinating to me now. Yeah, no, I am really happy, like ecstatic that we could have you, Michael, cause I know it would have been like, the, the the easy conversation to have with these movies would be to just like go through like every silly thing and just laugh about all the silly things that are in these movies. I think there is something more interesting and deeper to talk about that's going on in them. And it was helpful to have someone who has more of a background in these things and a conviction about these things. Is there anything that you want to plug or anything on Cinematary coming up you want to tease? to our massive audience. I I guess like, you know, you can go to cinematary.com. So that's like cinema and then Terry, like the end of cemetery. Um, And uh, we've got a bunch of episodes. I've not been on the podcast the entire run since it began. Uh, This guy named Zach uh, started it with my buddy, Andrew. Um, So it goes back like hundreds of episodes, but uh, kind of more recently, if you're interested in more conversations like this, I kind of helped make a, podcast where we did a bunch of biblical episodes uh like on biblical movies and seth you were on the one where we talked about the noah movie right talked about noah and i also talked yeah i also talked about prince of egypt yeah so that was like a year ago maybe that we did that um right now we're about to do um uh a series on uh michelle yo the actress but uh i imagine that will be less religiously themed man noah was batshit oh my god that movie's Can great. Yeah, yeah. Started. I think the real plug is oh, for uh, Darren Aronofsky's Noah. Everyone go out and watch that movie. It was, I am a total apologist. It's a wild, crazy movie. It's amazing. It's good. Estes would be pissed <laughs> at that movie. For real. I bet he would have liked the rock monsters, though. I like them. They're tall, funny. CGI is my friend. <laughs> good purple. I've been perking all week. <laughs> good purple. Seth always gives good purple. All right. Yeah, here's your future!
Unwatchables is produced by Tony Scarpetti, hosted by me, Mark Dottavio, and Seth Troyer, with artwork by Micah Krause. You can find Seth and I on Letterboxd under Mark Dottavio and Sloth Troyer. You can also check us out at unwatchablespod.com for links to our Twitter and Instagram, or support us on Patreon for bonus content and to have a say in what we watch. Thanks for listening. God told his son it's time to come home. I promise you won't have to die all alone. I need you to pay for the sins I create.